All right, so how was everybody's week? Is that too loud? Is that too loud? No? Okay. Everybody have a good week so far? Good. So I don't know if I shared. Most of you know I do have a degree in philosophical apologetics, right? Um, all that means is that I was, uh, like I was explaining, I was part of the, the first class of Talbot School of Theology, which is Biola, um, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. So I was at California Baptist University at the time, and on Wednesday nights, they introduced this thing called uh, Defending the Faith Lecture Series. Um, back then, Dr. Craig Hazen was the dean of the School of uh, Theology of Talbot. And so it, it was a trot to get from Riverside to La Mirada, California. It's about an hour and a half drive one way on, on Wednesday nights, but you know, what am I, 20 something, so I didn't care, you know, young college student, who cares if I get home at you know, two in the morning. So. Anyways, so we're attending this Defending the Faith lecture series, and Dr. Hazen finally asks us, he's like, hey guys, do you want to you know, start a program? We can start a, a master's in philosophical apologetics. Like All the lectures that you've received so far will count as, as college credits. And we're like, yeah, absolutely, because it's been free. <laughs> you know, why wouldn't we? Because who, who was um, teaching at these Defending the Faith lecture series? It, it was some heavy-duty names. It was, you know, J.P. Moreland. It was um, Dr. William Lane Craig. It, it was some significant heavy headers in the faith as far as apologists go. So anyways, I was part of the inaugural program there. And about two years afterwards, I was heavily, heavily convicted because I was having a conversation with a, an atheist, a self-proclaimed atheist. And God had convicted me on why? Why are you having this conversation? What's the point? Do you want to win an argument or do you want to see someone come to the kingdom of Christ? Well, that's a, that's a very good point, Lord. Obviously, I'd like to see someone come to the kingdom of Christ. So here I was, this you know, grand student of apologetics, and God had convicted me, what's the point? What do you use apologetics for? Do we have the authority to argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven? No. We, we don't. We don't have that authority. It's the Holy Spirit that saves. Let's be very, very clear about that. So what's the point? What do we use apologetics for? So it was my conviction. We use apologetics for what we're using it today. I think to strengthen the faith of the body that gives us the confidence to go out and share our faith without any fear. Um, we have that much more confidence to be able to, to explain why we believe what we believe and that it is the absolute truth of what we believe. So the other thing is, well, what's the point? Why would you have those conversations with somebody? Well, because we don't know how the Spirit's going to work at that point. We don't know if we plant that seed of doubt in their faith of atheism that someone else may come and water, and of course, God is going to give the growth, right? So we've been going over a lot of proofs um, for the existence of God. We haven't gotten in any of the scientific proofs yet, just the philosophical stuff. I know it's a bit slow. We'll get there. We'll get to the scientific proofs of the existence of God. But I wanted to go over how. How do we engage? What do those conversations look like when you engage with a non-believer? Um, I can speak from my own experiences. When I was a non-believer and I would engage with Christians, what was the point? What were the questions that I asked and why did I ask them? Well, I asked specific questions because I had an idea in my mind, a justification of why I did not want to believe in God. The questions that I, weren't, that I was asking, they weren't legitimate questions that I wanted answered in order to explain so I could believe, so I can get over this hurdle of non-belief. I had a specific reason. I hated God 
because of my upbringing, because of my experiences, and I didn't want to believe in him. I liked my life at the time. And that is commonly what you're going to find when you deal with non-believers. Very, very rarely, as a matter of fact, in my entire saved career, 25, 27 years, however long I've been saved, I've encountered one person that actually had legitimate questions that he wanted answered first before he can overcome the stumbling block of unbelief. One out of probably hundreds that I've engaged with over the years. So, uh, who's this guy again, babe? Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort, right. Have you guys ever heard of Ray Comfort, The Way of the Master? Okay. So, in this particular video, Ray Comfort um, is engaging with uh, atheists, evolutionary biologists, um, chemists on different college university campuses. He's at UCLA and, and SC as well. But what I want you to pay attention to during this video is how he engages with uh, those questions. The reason being, so we're, we're, our big point is how, 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 how do we engage? How do we answer these questions? Um, if any of you, let me see a raise of hands who did not be able to attend the apologetics uh, conference with Alan Schlemann. Okay, so Alan brought up a couple interesting points and it's been my experience as well. Remember what I said, my reasons for unbelief was because I didn't want to believe in God. I had a deep-seated hatred, I had deep-seated faith of unbelief. So whenever you engage with those people, they're going to try and machine gun different questions and get you off topic. So you're going to have, you know, they're going to talk about evolution and then they'll talk about Big Bang. Then they'll talk about, you know, starlight and time and redshift and then morality. And then why did God allow the destruction of the Canaanites? It will go everywhere. Okay. So what Ray Comfort does at this point, he sticks to one very, very specific question. When they try to go off topic, he asks the same question again. He wants an answer to one question. You'll have to do that. What Alan shared in the conference is called the Columbo Method. Did any of you ever watch that TV program when you were younger? What was Columbo famous for? You know, he, he looked like the bumbling idiot in the room because he asked so many questions and he'd walk away, oh, one more thing. Oh, one more thing. He would constantly ask questions. How'd you come to that conclusion? Explain to me why you believe that what you believe. The point is in asking these questions and steering the conversation to only one very specific question, one very specific point is so that prayerfully you can get them to realize by asking the questions, they will come themselves to the logical conclusion. Well, I guess what I believe doesn't fully fit. It doesn't obey the laws of logic and reason does it. So without further ado, let's take a look at Ray Comfort here. Atheist. Why am I an atheist? Because there is no God. Atheism assumes that you can disprove the existence of a God, but I'm an atheist. What Darwin showed in his work on evolution and natural selection is that we don't need to invoke any supernatural force or power to account for the development of life through time on Earth. The ongoing processes that, that are observable in today's world. The canine kind, the coyote, and the domestic dog, and there's the feline kind, which is the cat, the tiger and the kitten, and you've got humankind. So Darwin said there'd be a change of kinds over many years, so could you give me one example of observable evidence of a change of kinds. So for instance, the fossil record shows the common ancestors of all carnivores, that cats and dogs were once linked, once united by a common ancestor. How long ago? 
Uh, this, I believe, was like 60 million years ago. The scientific methodist must be observable and repeatable. So could you give me one piece of observable evidence for Darwinian evolution? Okay, I would point to, as one great example is, look at the genetics of the stickleback. What's that? Uh, so stickleback fish are a very interesting collection of species that were recently isolated after the end of the ice age. What have they become? They're, they're various species of sticklebacks. They stayed as fish? Well, of course, human beings are still fish. Human beings are fish? Why, yes, of course they are. Could you give me <laughs> an example of Darwinian evolution, not adaptation or speciation, but a change of kinds? <laughs> These are changes of kinds. They're still fish. They're distinctly different fish. We have thousands of examples. Can you, can you give me one? I can give you, I can give you thousands, just one. For instance, I would say, uh, look at Lenski's experiments with bacteria then. So what do the bacteria become? Uh, the bacteria are still bacteria, of course. That's not Darwinian evolution. That's not a change of kinds, is it? It, it is a change, it is a change in the genetic makeup of the bacteria, which is still bacteria. So what do the bacteria become? Uh, a new kind of bacteria. So it's still bacteria, there's no change of kinds. To summarize, the observable evidence that you give me for Darwinian evolution is bacteria becoming bacteria. No, it is bacteria acquiring new metabolic capabilities. You said before that there, are, there is lots of evidence for evolution. I just want one observable evidence for Darwinian evolution, not just one. But I gave you some. You don't want not some. I want one. You don't want that. I want one. Yes, I do. I'm pleading with you. You, you asked me to tell you. You asked me to tell you when I've watched one species evolve into another. Isn't that right? No, one kind into another. There's 14. There's 14 different definitions of species. So I want a change of kind. Well, when you're talking about kinds or change in families, you're, you're actually talking about about macro evolution, you're talking about um, uh, changes on the level of, that separate, say, cats from dogs. Could you give me examples of Darwinian evolution? Well, uh, when you say examples of that, then you have to sort of look over a longer time frame. When you say change of kind, you mean the evolution of one species from another or to another? Yes, we have that in action actually in the Galapagos. Could you give me one instance? Yes, we have an example from a group of birds called Darwin's finches. What do the finches become? They become genetically new and anatomically new, recognizably different species. They're still finches? Well, of course they're still finches, yes. They're not a change of, there's no change of kind. Darwin spoke of a change of kind. Can you think of any observable evidence for Darwinian evolution with this change of kind? observe and test, which is the scientific method for Darwinian evolution, a change of kinds. Test and observe. Could you give me observable evidence, which is the scientific method for Darwinian evolution, a change of kinds? Say. 
bad, I think. Um, hmm. It's a hard question, actually. Could you give me any observable evidence, just one, for Darwinian evolution? Yeah, let me think about that for a sec. Um, hmm. Observable evidence, something where we don't have to exercise faith. Something that can be observed, like the scientific process, observable? Hmm, that's a good question. That one I'm not quite sure. So you can't think of any observable evidence for evolution? No. How do you know it's true? Sure. So Darwinian evolution is not observable, it's not scientific. I guess so. So it's unscientific, you can't prove it. It's scientific actually, you could prove it, it could be proven, just do it for me. Ah, that's hard, I don't got, I don't, it's just, that's just too broad of a... It's unobservable, that's why you need millions of years. Yes, exactly. We're well, trusting the biology majors and the biology professors know what they're talking about, yeah, yeah. and they can't even that's give great. me, a, they can't even give me evidence of a change of kinds. Well, I, well then there isn't one. If they don't give it, then I don't, I wouldn't say there was. Yeah, I just go on what I've seen and what I've learned from class. Do you believe? Yeah. You know what that's called? What? Line faith. Line faith. <laughs> Okay, so a couple things I want us to notice from that. Would anyone say in that video, Ray Comfort was rude or insulting to any of those people? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so either. I thought he was very, very gracious and he was simply asking an answer for his question. We have gotten into this system today, it's called relativism, okay? It's the true for you but not true for me idea. And it goes a little bit deeper than that. We've come to believe that disagreeing with anyone's particular point of view or their worldview is somehow insulting to that person as a whole or demeaning to their self-worth and their character. I don't see how that is, okay? We've gotten scared as Christians to be able to ask these difficult questions to folks that happen to have a differing worldview than us. We think that by asking these questions, we are somehow demeaning them and their character and their worth as a human. I, again, do not see how that's possible. An idea does not make you who you are as a fundamental human or your self-worth. It's just something you happen to believe at that time, okay? My idea when I was younger was that broccoli was really, really gross. My idea now, you put enough cheese on anything, it's delicious, <laughs> okay? So, am I less of a human? My doctor's over there shaking his head. <laughs> Am I less of a human for believing that bro broccoli is gross or that putting enough cheese on it makes it delicious because they're differing views? No, it just happens to be a belief at this point. So the idea that by asking these questions and engaging with people, we are somehow demeaning them is false. Um, so all I can offer at that point is get over it. Ask the difficult questions, but do it in grace and love. Don't do it condescendingly, right? You wanna make sure that you're engaging in a respectful manner, just as we saw Ray Comfort was doing. The other thing I want to get us to notice is 
when he was asking, as you saw, they tried to steer off the conversation. You know, they were talking about adaptation or what's commonly referred to in the textbooks as microevolution, right? As in those spiny fish, for example, developing the spines over time. And Ray's question constantly was, well, are they still fish? Well, of course they're still fish. Then please explain to me how this is evidence for Darwinian evolution. Now, ideas have consequences. They have very, very powerful consequences. Okay, I want to be very clear about that. Does anyone know when Darwin first published his book, the famous one? It was in 1859, okay? Now, we know it today as the origin of the species. Now, I happen to have an original first published edition in my personal library in 1859 copy of that book. I'll bring it in after I get my library. We just moved last October. After I get my library built and um, I can you know, get my book situated again, that's not the full title of the book. The full title of the book is On the Origin of the Species or the Preservation Through the Struggle of Life Through Favored Races. Exactly. Can we think of any other peoples in history that thought there were favored races? Yeah, we certainly can. So ideas have consequences. But is it our job in engaging with non-believers for us to save them? Is it our responsibility by how well we uh, present the argument or present the facts, do we save them? So if you do a poor job, is it your fault that they walk away with unbelief? It's not. So I want to let you off the hook, okay? It's the Spirit alone who saves. We present the evidence, we preach the gospel and truth and love, and shut up. We're like the Walter Cronkites, but of the gospel, okay? If you remember Walter Cronkite, I, when news was good, I miss him because he would read the news and then just shut up and let us make our own decisions after that. So what does this end up looking like? What types of questions are we going to get based on the evidences that we went over so far? Okay, so we've gone over a couple different evidences. The basic argument is called the Kalam cosmological argument. That's the first one we went over. Okay, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Okay, we've not yet proven that that cause is the Christian God of the Bible, but we have proven, at least philosophically, that that cause, that there is a cause. It can't just happen out of nothing, and it can't happen um, purely in all time for all existence. So. What are some of the objections that you will probably get when you're engaging with, say, college professors or people on the street? Well, what about the multiverse or scientific means that we have not yet found? Uh, Gabe's not here. He would know what. <laughs> <laughs> We've he... actually gotten that one in Duke. Oh, have you? Yeah. Perfect. Um, I, the, the argument that you'll sometimes get, what about um, other scientific means we have not yet found, or what about the multiverse? Now, what... Multiverse. Instead of universe, multiverse. So I know Margaret's confused too. So this is a new-ish thing in the 21st century. The idea is this, that there is not one singular universe, but there is rather an infinite number of multiverses continuously forming, continuously expanding. So therefore, we have complete absolute infinity, so we can therefore bypass all of the mathematical improbabilities for the, the speciation and then the formation of life on a specific planet, okay? However, when someone asks that question, what about the multiverse or scientific means we haven't found yet, it's actually a logical fallacy. Like I said, Gabe would know which one. It's an appeal to the ignorance fallacy. We can't say just because we haven't found the evidence for it yet, therefore it must be true. Does that make sense? 
So if we haven't found the evidence for you know, screaming pink unicorns, does that mean screaming pink unicorns must exist because we haven't found the evidence that they don't? It no. Was pink <laughs> it was invisible, but now I just decided to make them screaming pink uni unicorns. So, <laughs> so let me make a, a very powerful statement. We'll get into this in, in future weeks once we start getting into the actual scientific proof of, of the universe. We know that all, and I'm going to make an absolute statement, all of the scientific evidence that we have concludes that the universe began to exist, okay? It is not an infinitely old thing. Now, what Ray was doing in this video, he was appealing to something called the scientific method. So for those of us that, that weren't science majors or science-minded, um, many folks were English-minded, like my wife, for example, her favorite classes, the scientific method is this. If you want to find out something, it must be a repeatable process that you can measure and that you can observe, okay? That's called the scientific method, and that's what we base all science off of today, and it's what we have since the advent of science. So I'm gonna do an experiment, an experiment on the force of gravity. I'm gonna say, if I drop this coffee sleeve, I think it is going to fall up. Nope, it fell down. Is this observable? Yes. Is it repeatable? Is it gonna fall up? Nope, it fell down. It's repeatable. Is it measurable? Sure, I can measure the rate at which it falls, all of that fun stuff. Is it gonna fall up? No, it falls down. That is an example of the scientific method, a very, very simple and crude experiment, but you get the idea. So the idea that Darwinian evolution is part of the scientific method is a complete fallacy because it is not observable. Their idea that, you know, 480 billion years ago, Yes. Were you there? No. Well, then it's not observable. Are we seeing it happen today? Are fish still fish? Yes. Are we seeing it happen today? Well, no, then it's not repeatable. So I'm not discounting the theory in and of itself, but what I am discounting is them saying that it is absolute scientific fact when it is just as much of a faith-based system as what we in this room have right now. It just happens to be polar opposites. They believe that 480 billion years ago the universe was formed out of a big bang. We believe that in the beginning, God created. Both of them are faith-based systems. And that, ever since I became saved, has always been my argument with the public education system. I don't mind you teaching evolution in public schools, but I want you to admit that it is a faith-based system. If you will not allow me to teach creation science in public schools because it is a faith-based system, how can you be allowed to teach Darwinian evolution that is a faith-based system. Now, what do I mean when I say Darwinian evolution? You may have gotten the idea from Ray Comfort in the video. Darwinian evolution is meaning that kinds, okay? Now, there's a difference between species and kind. Let me, let me elaborate, okay? A Great Dane is a dog. A Chihuahua is a dog. They are different species of dog, but the kind is dog, canis, right? Now, Darwinian evolution says that the dog evolved from a non-dog, a completely different kind of animal. We have yet to see that, okay? We only see variations within the species. So what are some of the other questions that will go against this? Some, you may, I don't know if you guys have had this one in Juby. Um, the universe did not have a cause, but it always was. 
It was always there. Has anyone heard this one yet? You have, good. Well, the scientific evidence, now we'll appeal to science on this one, actually shows that this claim, it doesn't work. Because we know that the universe, through the advent of the Hubble telescope, is actually expanding, okay? Uh, I don't have a piece of paper, I wish I did. Um, so what do I mean? How does that prove that the universe has a cause? Well, if something is expanding, is that possible for it have to have been expanding for eternity, for an infinite amount of time? No, it had to have an origin and then keep getting bigger, right? Because how would it be possible to have something expanding and always have been expanding? There has to be an origin. So the cause of the universe is timeless, therefore it never began to exist. The argument goes like this. So you're telling me that the universe has to have a cause. But on the next breath, you're telling me that God himself, the creator of the universe, is causeless. How does that work? Isn't that a problem? Well, no. Here's why. Uh, so we have to differentiate between things that exist. Okay, if something is here, right, we know that it exists. Right? Okay, we don't want to get into the fringe that, you know, maybe we just think we're here, man. We're all part of the matrix. Okay, so no. We, we want to actually realize the fact that something is here, it actually exists. Okay, this coffee cup. There's two types of existence that I want to teach you today. The first one is existence by necessity. And the second one is existence by contingency, okay? So what do I mean when I say existence by contingency? Well, this coffee cup exists, this coffee cup is here, but it's quite clear that something else had to produce this coffee cup, okay? This coffee doesn't exist by necessity. My wife would disagree because in the morning without it, it doesn't work. <laughs> However, let's just agree that this coffee cup exists because of something else making it to exist. Are you guys with me so far? Okay. So what type of things can we see today that are real-ish, however, they exist by necessity? Well, follow me on, on, on this one. If you guys get lost, don't hesitate to you know, throw up your hands, okay? Numbers and equations exist by necessity, okay? Does that make sense? They are necessity, uh, they are there because they have to be. For example, um, if I have two oranges and add another two oranges, we know that I will then have four oranges, okay? The oranges themselves exist contingently. They don't have to exist. They just do. Something else caused their existence. I'm glad that it did. I love oranges. They're delicious, okay? However, but the equation two plus two equals four must exist by necessity to explain how I now have four oranges. Does that make sense? Awesome, good. I thought this, this, this really wouldn't work uh, today when I was explaining necessity and contingency. Okay, it's logically possible that the universe could not have existed at all, right? But it does. Well, the answer is, or the question is, uh, well, who cares? Who cares that it does exist? What does it matter? So it does not exist by necessity because it doesn't matter if it doesn't exist, right? Who cares? It exists contingently, so therefore we get it, its existence from something else. You, you guys follow me so far? So everything that exists must have a reason for its existence. Either its very nature is a necessity making it necessary to exist, like numbers and equations, two plus two equals four, or a contingent, meaning its existence is dependent on something else. So 
the idea when you're engaging with somebody and we're telling them that the universe began to exist and it had an uncaused first cause and we tell them that the universe can't have existed in and of itself by nothing and someone says, well, you're telling me that God exists in and of himself by nothing. It's because the universe is a contingently existent thing. It doesn't matter that it does exist. But God is in this necessity existence. It does matter that he does exist. Okay? By his very nature, he has to be a necessity. Does that make sense? I know we, we start to, to lose it when we, when we think about... What, Mrs. Kirk? <laughs> we start to lose it when we think about time and, and these things of contingency and necessary existence. Okay? So here's another argument uh, or objection that we'll get. Humans can create a moral framework successfully without the need for a god or a religion. Is that a true statement? It it is, in my opinion. I think it is. It's certainly possible for humans to create a moral or ethical system without reference to God, so long as they presuppose the intrinsic value of human beings. That's where morality and ethics come from. Now, with an atheistic worldview, do we have a presupposition that human beings in and of themselves, not based on what they produce, will just themselves hold an intrinsic value and self-worth. No. Where do we, yeah, Mary. Some people are trying to say consciousness makes intrinsic value, intrinsic value in humans okay. different than others. That's just something I've heard more recently. I'm going to repeat the question for the audio, uh, for the recording. So Mary's question was, some people have said that consciousness um, signifies an intrinsic value or net worth of a human apart from the humanness of it. That actually proves our point. I'll get into that. So we have all agreed almost unanimously here in the class today that the atheist worldview does not hold the value of humans in and of themselves to be intrinsic. What is our biggest proof that they don't hold human life to be of intrinsic value? Abortion, for one. Absolutely. Uh, Human value does not have intrinsic worth in the atheistic worldview. So... Here's the idea. It comes down to what is the meaning of life? Well, that depends on your philosophical worldview. If you believe that God is a special creator God and has created you and redeemed you, your view of the meaning of life goes something like this. I am a special and wonderfully made creation from the creator God. I have a very distinct purpose and I was bought for with a very heavy price. And I know that my purpose, my life meaning here on this earth is to take as many people with me as possible before I die. Amen. Right? However, on the atheistic evolutionary worldview, what is their particular view of the meaning of life? It's a little bit bleaker, right? So about four and a half billion years ago, it began to rain on the rocks and it formed this primordial ooze. And then the first amoeba-like creature climbed out of the primordial ooze, and then, well, number one, it found another amoeba to marry. Now, that's a trick. Um, and then they started reproducing and then forming legs and, and, and so on, okay? At that point, you have no special creation. So what is the point of life? It isn't. There really isn't. Just you might as well do what you want. You might as well have fun. You might as well live your life. Eat, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. A man much wiser than me had quoted that many thousands of years ago. Anyone know who it was? Solomon. So it's, it's a very bleak 
outlook uh, on the meaning of life. We've had a lot of, especially in today's culture, we're asking the question, why are these young people behaving like animals? I mean, they have no respect for anything, no restraint. Well, if you teach them that you, know, you evolve from a primordial ooze, and it doesn't matter where you came from, and it doesn't matter what you do, well, of course they're gonna behave like that. It's just common sense. It's what they're going to believe. So when given its quote-unquote personhood, I think of humanness as a composite of a body and soul, not just a bag of chemicals on top of human bones. We have a soul. The developing fetus is a potential, is not a potential human, but rather it is a human with potential. Does that make sense? Now, what do I mean when I say the word soul? Um, Dr. Moreland once did an entire class at Talbot on this, on, on what is the soul, but I'll summarize it as this. Do humans have a soul? Yes. Is it observable by the scientific method? No. Then we have to get into philosophy here. What does it mean to have a soul? Um, this morning, I was thinking about breakfast, but I was also thinking about the thought about breakfast. Then I thought about the thought of what I was going to have for breakfast. Do you see how I can keep going deeper and deeper into that? Now that shows that there is something outside of this bag of flesh that is dictating what I do, okay? Now think about our animals. Does our dog in the morning think about having breakfast? Yes. Does it think about the type of breakfast that it's gonna have? No. Does it think about the thought of it's having the type of breakfast it's gonna have? No. Okay, do you, do you know that? <laughs> how can I know that? <laughs> Have you seen what dogs will eat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea, do you guys understand the, the basic concept of what it means to have a soul and how it, it is very different from just this bag of flesh here? Okay. Yes. To be argued that's learned behavior. What is learned behavior? You know, as far as thinking deep about what you have a breakfast or anything else, if you're a newborn baby, you don't go through the thought processes. That's correct. Um, but can you explain, is it, is it based on a newborn baby that you haven't gone through those thought processes? Is that how you came to that conclusion? Well, when you're first born, scientists can prove that if you take this species and through psychology or some tests, behavior analysis, you'll find that you can't, that a newborn baby could have those thoughts. It's a word behavior. However, I'm not saying that there's not a soul. Good point. Um, but I would ask you another question. So you know who Dr. Mengele was, right? Yes. Okay, he was the famed uh, atrotic uh, German scientist that performed horrific tests on the Jewish people. They once decided to try and do a test on what would happen to a human child if it was not spoken to or it was not interacted with at all. It was only fed. Basic needs, fed and changed, that's it. No love given to it, no language. They wanted to see what language will it speak if living in a vacuum, as it were. Does anyone want to hazard a guess what happened to all those human children during this experiment? They died, 100%. 100% of them died without having any type of interaction. If we do not have a soul that requires fellowship with either a, a greater creator or each other, why did that human child, many of them, die with no interaction? It's a good question, right? So speaking about morality, now you guys remember the argument for morality that we um, posited, right? Can someone repeat that for me? The argument of morality? <laughs> Nobody remembers the argument of, of morality? So the argument for morality goes something like this. 
there are absolute morals. We can see and observe these absolute morals. Therefore, there must be an absolute moral lawgiver. Therefore, God exists. Oh, the punch in the face example. <laughs> the punch in the face example. Yes. What does that mean for those of us that are maybe listening online? If someone comes up to you and says, there are no absolute truths, what do you do? You just punch them in the face. You don't say a word. You just punch them directly into the face. What is their response? Well, you can't do that. Well, why not? Because it's not right. Ah, you just appealed to an absolute morality that it's not right that I punch you in the face. However, it is right for me to punch you in the face. So who are you to judge me and tell me that my morality is wrong? Right? It's just a preference, it's just a preference at that point. Does that make sense? So speaking of morality and an absolute moral lawgiver, and I have heard this one quite a bit. What about the atrocities of God to destroy the Canaanites along with everything in it, the innocent children, even hamstringing the animals? What about that? Does this not prove that even God of the Bible did not have absolute morality, thus self-defeating the argument applying to absolute morality? Anyone want to hazard a, a guess on this one? God is holy. Exactly. What does that mean? Do you want to, uh, she said that God is holy for the recording. What does that mean? Do you want to flesh that out a little bit more? God Yep, absolutely. She had said that God hates sin. What does that mean? So the land of Cana, were they perfectly upright, just, and moral people? What was happening in Cana at the time? It was gross bestiality. It was child sacrifice to their pagan gods. It was everything imaginable under the sun. So here's the deal. The God of the Bible is intrinsically good, and he is absolutely holy, and issues commands to us that become our moral duties. Is that, are you guys with me so far? So... It boils down to the justice of God being able to do with his creation as he wills. Does this make him any less moral? I would argue no. The arguments such as the above are actually just emoting. Okay, let's get down to it. What are people saying? It's not fair that God destroyed those poor, you know, sodomistic, bestiality, uh, child-sacrificing Canaanites. It's just not fair that he shouldn't be able to do that. Well, why not? In that statement, they are applying an uh, excuse me, appealing to a higher moral law that they are even holding God himself to the standard of. Is that, does that make sense? Yes? People come up with arguments saying that, you know, God has done these horrible things. It's like, well, you have to read what was leading up to that, what were the surrounding circumstances, and you'll read clearly that it was justified every time. So, by the, I'm going to play devil's advocate by that argument. If the Jews at that point, if the nation of Israel were performing such atrocities, would it have been justifiable for the Nazis to have done what they have done? Okay, the answer is no. You're on the right answer. <laughs> what were you going to say, Mary? They're people. Yes. Other people. Exactly. Exactly. They are other people. They are under the guidelines of these moral commands of which God commands of us. We are not the moral law giver. We are only intended to just fulfill the moral commands that are imprinted or commanded us. Does that make sense? God is also just. So, you know, he, he's able to execute justice on people mm -hmm. and not be held to some other moral law, just like a judge could pass a death sentence on somebody. It's not, he's not doing the wrong thing. He's not violating the law by doing that. He's upholding the law. Exactly. Exactly. Yep, absolutely. For those of you that didn't hear Randy's comment, 
um, that God is absolutely just, right? As the moral lawgiver, he is not imposing moral commands on himself. He is the moral law, right? So it just wouldn't work for him to impose those moral commands on himself as he imposes on us. Does that mean that God doesn't have to obey any of the moral laws? No, that's not what I'm saying. You see, God's nature is to be perfectly just and perfectly holy. We know that God at his, uh, his absolute holiness is always going to be just and is always going to be righteous. Take, for example, the Great Flood. The entire population of the world was destroyed, save for a handful of people. Was that a wrong thing to do because did he murder innocent people? No, none of them were innocent. Okay, and they were his creation, right? If I build a coffee table and I don't like it, do I not have the right to take a chainsaw to it and destroy it and build another one? Absolutely, I absolutely do, and I have. And <laughs> <laughs> he even left him a boat. <laughs> <laughs> he even left him a boat, right? So here's another argument that we're gonna hear um, consistently. Christians are led to believe that the Bible is divine and authoritative. So what aspects of the Bible um, is reliable and spiritually divine? We're actually going to get into this later. It's called textual criticism. We'll deal with the proofs of the historicity and the accuracy of the Bible. But by asking that question, what are they doing? They're doing exactly what they did in the video with Ray Comfort. They're trying to steer us in machine gunning all these different questions at one time. And you have to, have to, have to, have to keep them on track by just the original question, the one specific question. How do you do that? You ask questions as Ray Comfort did. Are they still fish? Can you give me one example of Darwinian evolution? Can you give me an example of a kind turning into another kind? Just keep asking the questions that leads to one specific question. Does that make sense when you're having that engagement? So what was the next um, evidence that we gave? for the existence of God. Well, we gave the sense of the fine-tuning of the universe, which is the absolute impossibility for life to have formed by chance or either by just pure necessity. But what about evolution? What about Darwin? So let's deal with the gravitational constant. Now, anyone know what I mean when I say the gravitational? Okay, Lynn does. Gravitational constant. So with the gravitational constant, it means the force of gravity is at a constant rate. Okay? It, it doesn't fluctuate. What would happen if it did fluctuate, especially in the formation right, of the universe? Let's deal with that. If only one part in 10 to the 60th power were to fluctuate of the gravitational constant, what do I mean by 10 to the 60th power? That's a 10 with 60, six zero zeros behind it. Can you even fathom that number? No. But with the gravitational constant, if one part out of 10 to the 60th power were to go awry and would have been off, absolute devastation would have assumed. Either the universe would have expanded too rapidly for any star to have formed at all, or else it would collapse back in upon itself. It would not have been possible. That's just the gravitational constant. That is a huge, hugely small margin of error. How small? 10 to the 60th power. It's so small, it is not even mathematically probable, except if we have multiverses. If we have multiverses, the idea is that there is an infinite number of possible universes given. So we have an infinite number of chances to get it right to produce the fine-tuned universe that produces life. Are you guys seeing this yet? 
This is actually one of the greatest triumphs of the fine-tuning argument, for so in trying to explain the fine-tuning of the universe, scientists have now actually turned to philosophical explanations of the multiverse which cannot be detected, measured, observed, or proved. So it defeats the scientific method. The most devastating crusher of the multiverse, though, is math itself and the idea of the infinite. We should not be surprised when the roulette wheel at every single uh, rotation, turn, whatever you call it when you play roulette, always lands on the red 20. 100% of the time, it's landing on the red 20. If you were a part of that game, would you not cry foul play that something is awry with this? Why is it constantly landing on the red 20? However, with the multiverse, the math works out that it can happen somewhere, so why not it happening right now for me betting on red 20 every time? Is that, are, are you with me? So the mathematical improbability absolutely crushes the idea of a multiverse, but you see the point that the science itself can't prove and it can't support the idea of multiple universes. So we're just gonna go to the philosophy and say, well, it can happen. It doesn't work. Um, it's absolutely self-defeating. So we're, we're running close to time. We have about 10 minutes left, I believe. So any questions so far? Yes. Well, going back to your part of this program where you talked about kind. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've seen it, but there was a, something that we were studying, you know, a small group. You know, with kind, because it got into, uh, when you ask this DNA, uh -huh. it's like there's a reason why you can't grab a fir tree onto a fruit tree. There's a reason why, and I, I know it's been done, but uh -huh. it hasn't been explicitly brought out, but they tried to cross eggs and the mate and try to cross them with a human being, and never worked. There's a reason for that. Yep. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. So I'm going to repeat for the recording. Uh, on dealing with kinds, um, we have different kinds, as we can see, uh, inside of our created order right now. For example, you cannot graft an apple tree onto a dug fir and expect to produce this weird, piney-tasting apple, okay? It, 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 it won't work. So what does that, that mean? Let me give a couple of examples. Do you guys know that the lug nuts from a 1988 Honda Accord will actually fit on a 1994 Chevy? Does that mean that they both evolved from a Buick 650 million years ago? <laughs> no, it means that they had a common designer. Do you guys also know that speaking of DNA, we human beings right now, upright and talking, we share 99.78% of our DNA genetic code with a banana? Does that mean we all evolved from a watermelon? <laughs> or the same one that designed the banana also designed the humans, and you can see the correlation between the designer, right? If you look at Van Gogh paintings, do they look similar? Yeah, same guy painting them, right? So we'll get into that more. We'll get into the scientific uh, proofs and scientific causes. Um, but any other questions before we, we end today? Yes? So the, the comment was for the recording that the multiverse is basically science fiction. It, it comes from, you know, graphic novels and comic books that, you know, a long time ago, far, far away, a fairy tale is coming next. Um, and that's absolutely true. It, it, 
they're trying to make it a truth. It's gotten so bad that scientists now have to plead with philosophy rather than science at this point to have any other cause for the non-existence of God. Well, thank you guys.